This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. If we're going to be disciples or apprentices of Jesus, we have to take seriously the impact of technological overuse on our brain and to start to unplug, to submit some of our mind back to God. Hi, I'm Carl Vaders, and welcome to the Church Lobby Podcast, Conversations on Faith and Ministry. My guest today is Daniel C. He's an author, and until very recently, he was a small church pastor. In this conversation, Daniel and I talk about the information in his recent book, Spacemaker, How to Unplug, Unwind, and Think Clearly in the Digital Age. Specifically, we address three areas that are having a massive effect on our lives and ministries. One, clutter. Two, neuroplasticity. And three, the stories we tell ourselves and others. And don't forget to stick around when the interview is done. I'll come back with an overview of the content and some practical takeaways. Daniel, it is an honor to have you on the podcast today. Sure appreciate your time. Thanks so much. It's great to be on your show, Carl. I read your book, Spacemaker, probably a few months ago. A Spacemaker, How to Unplug, Unwind, and Think Clearly in the Digital Age. Let's get the entire title and subtitle out there for everybody properly. And there's so much in it, but there were three things in particular that you hit on that have really been a big focus of mine in my life and in my teaching over the last few years. So just just to give you and the listeners in advance of here's where I'm going to come at you on uh, and have you speak back to us on, on the idea of clutter, on neuroplasticity, and on the power of story. These are three things that I have just really in my own life have been concentrating on the importance of and have been teaching to the pastors that I speak to and write to on a regular basis. They're just massive things that are really helping me reframe how to live life and how to do ministry. And you approach them so well, so simply and so practically in your book. So I want to do those three. Then I want to get an overview of the space framework uh, that almost sounds like we're talking science fiction there with space framework. It's of course the, from the title of your book, and that, that so that's where I want to go. But before I get into any of those things, let's start with a very simple, you know, defining of terms. Let's let's do that. First of all, what do you mean by making space, and why is it so important in our lives? Yeah, no, thanks. Great question. So look, I I used to be a well, I am a productivity consultant, so I work with a lot of leaders and managers, and obviously I've, I've been a pastor of a small church for over a decade as well until recently. And in all that time, I suppose I've just seen a change in our culture bit by bit where we have just less space, uh, less space to think clearly, less space to reflect on the inner life, less space to pray, to connect with loved ones or friends or community in person less space to rest deeply, basically less space for everything. And people feel like they're running from one thing to the next, that their kind of their thoughts are scattered and fractured. People are feeling like there's so much clutter in their life and that there's a whirlwind across work and life and faith. And I don't think that's necessarily of the kingdom of God. I mean, there's beautiful things in work and there's beautiful things in activity, but there is something beautiful about space. So I actually think in our age, Creating space, making space intentionally is one of the key things we need to do as leaders, as professionals, as parents, and obviously as followers of Jesus, because we need space to hear the spirit of God, to listen to the small voice, to allow him to shape us from the inside out as disciples. And so that space is important, but it will not happen unless we're intentional in our Western cultural context. Yeah. One of the things I love the way you write about it and the way you even just said it now in this conversation is you very clearly say, we're not talking about space in order to be more productive, in order to get more stuff done, although that will happen and we will actually be more productive if we do so. But that isn't the, the key thing. It's not about getting better organized. It really is about 
the healthfulness that comes when we live a life closer to the way God designed us with intentional space built into our lifestyles and our ministry patterns, right? Yeah. Yeah. And look, I don't use this language in the book because it's a book written for a non-religious audience, although you can see the themes of my faith embedded right throughout the book. But, you know, I would say to a Christian audience that in the kingdom of God, you know, when heaven comes to earth, there will be no email notifications. <laughs> you know, we're, I don't think we're, we're, we're not going to have Facebook likes and we're not going to run to standstill. We're not going to have this kind of hurried, busy work where we are constantly going and can never take our breath. Like there is going to be this, like heaven will be space filled where we can worship God and love each other. I believe there will be activity and meaningful things that we get to do to partner with God in his creation. We may have different theologies on that, but there won't be busyness. So if space is something we see in the future, well, again, what does it look like to live out that kingdom existence as apprentices of Jesus and to live a counterculture in the world around us as those who love and follow him? Yeah. In defining space in your book, you say this, space does not mean meditation and mindfulness, although those can be useful tools. Space is anything that helps us to stop, reflect, and regenerate. That's really what it's about, right? Recovery and regeneration. And I think we live in a culture, I think in America and to a certain degree in Australia as well, we are very uh, entrepreneurial cultures. There are some similarities in the settling of the of the West and the, the entrepreneurial exploration of this vast lands that we both live in, right? That really creates this idea of get stuff done, don't waste a moment of your day, and in accomplishing all of those things, we left behind this idea of, of slowing down and creating space, not as an exception from the accomplishment, but as an essential element in the accomplishment, right? Mm, yeah. And, and so, look, I do think that space has value in itself. We shouldn't have to justify rest exactly. or, no, or time in community from an economic perspective. Yeah. Uh, but the irony, I mean, I am a productivity consultant and it is a productivity book. The, <laughs> the irony, you know, is that actually the research is quite clear that those who make space in their life who aren't constantly overusing digital technology because technology takes up the majority of the space we lose at the moment. For those who unplug regularly and exit what I call digital overuse and return to this sense of being productive in the middle, using tech well, but not too much, they're actually more productive and healthier and happier. So we actually, I talk about in my book, an upside down curve where you need technology to be productive, clearly in every field. Uh, which I call the habits of keeping pace. So using tech well in order to get things done. Then you reach this plateau, this productive middle, imagine a kind of an upside down you. And then right. you hit digital overuse where you slide down the curve and more technology makes you more fractured, more distracted, more busy, but you don't get more done. So we actually need the habits of making space to unplug and unwind from tech to actually be productive. So, so you count it intuitively. It's, it's both and we should not justify humanity through economic measures just and, and spirituality and being children of God. And yet, like in his plan, when we trust him and rest in him, where we put Sabbath in our life, those kind of things, well, actually, we end up getting more done. Yeah, that's very true, which really leads us now to the, the first section. Let's talk about clutter, because as you define in the book, I think correctly so, the opposite of space is clutter, the opposite of clutter is space. Am I getting that correctly, first of all? Yeah, look, I don't know if it's a, you know, an Oxford dictionary uh, definition, <laughs> but it worked for me. So I put it in yeah. the book, you know. And I agree with that, too. I think in ministry, especially and for the small church pastors, which is the main audience that I'm speaking to here, our churches are too cluttered and our small churches particularly are way too cluttered. We're trying to do too many things in too small a, a space. And it's it's damaging in just about every aspect of our lives, emotional, physical, spiritual, uh, financial clutter is just a dangerous thing. And as you say, we now are in a position where this clutter is being driven now by our online lives in ways that it never was before. Talk to us for a little bit about how the constant tech assault is really driving this place away from space and toward clutter. 
Yeah. So, I mean, if I look at it through, uh, obviously, a church pastor's lens, because I led micro churches for many, many years, uh, like I do think that digital technology is one of the critical things that we need to wrestle with as pastors, as congregations, if we want to disciple people. It's absolutely a discipleship issue and also a missional issue. Uh, Rod Dreyer from the Benedict Option talked about the idea that technology and sexuality are the two big areas that the church will be hit on and smashed from a culture perspective. And yet I think we're quite aware of the tension in terms of traditional sexuality and understanding of marriage. But in terms of tech, a lot of us just go with the flow and then we wonder why our kids stop following Jesus. And yet they're being discipled by ideas and platforms and processes that are really not in line with many of the kingdom principles, in line with leading people to love God and trust in him. And so we really need to recognize just how formative technology is in terms of the, the forming of our habits and our mindsets and our beliefs, which is what discipleship is, you know, being yeah, shaped yeah. to look like Jesus in heart, mind, actions, mm -hmm. uh, and the clutter that comes from that. Uh, so that that's one thing. And the, the other aspect you mentioned is, I think you're right, in small churches, it is just so hard to get everything done. And some of that we put on ourselves, you know, we put programs in place, and we try to copy what the mainstream larger churches are doing. And we can't do that because of our resources. But sometimes it's just tough being a small church. I mean, when I say small, we had a church of less than 100 for 10 years. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah. And so just to keep up with some of the Australian government regulations for being a church is actually difficult, you know, plus basic, you know, discipleship for kids and, and worship and things like that. But one of the things we work really hard at is to unclutter, to say yeah. where we can reduce something, let's reduce it. Where we can simplify something, let's do that. Make it as simple and as reproducible as possible. Because when people look at us, and this is the missional part, I think they're very unattracted to Christians and to Christian cultures where they just see people constantly busy. You know, great, come and be a Christian, love Jesus so that you can be in band practice twice a week and yeah. then have home group and then have all of your Sundays taken up and then feel exhausted with board meetings all the way through the week. Yeah, that's the kind of life I want to live. That's the abundance that Jesus gave me. We, people see it. And, yeah. and yet in our culture of clutter, what people are looking for is a slow culture, a culture of people who genuinely know each other and spend time together, which is what small churches can do differently from, than big churches, where we eat together and we pray together and we learn and we serve, but where we are unhurried and where yeah. we have this place of peace and where we can encourage each other to be slower and to break the culture narrative of consumption. So I actually think making space, Sabbath resting, uncluttering is actually something that will draw people to Jesus. And we have seen that in our own communities. Yeah. I think that's a hugely important point. You started this little segment by talking about how we look at both the two pushbacks are going to be against uh, sexuality and technology. And we in the church, because the Bible uh, has such clear uh, ideas about sexuality, but technology wasn't as advanced, obviously then. So it's not spoken to as clearly to us all the principles are there of course but you know there were no iphones back then so paul didn't tell us about iphones uh, <laughs> but sexuality hasn't changed so he talked about sexuality so when we offer this culture a biblical sexual alternative there will be pushback but i think what you've hinted at here and if i'm if i'm misphrasing you please correct me on this if we do offer them the alternative to the clutter to the over uh, stimulation and the division of mind that happens with our over -techno technologically advanced culture, if we offer an alternative to that, they will in fact welcome that and in fact desire that. So just like we shouldn't lean into the culture's changing sexual mores, we should not be leaning into the culture's changing technological mores, but giving them an alternative. And that in fact will be a big appeal to them. Yeah, I look, and that's that is what I'm saying. I, I do think it's yeah. both and, you know, like I know that people in Australia long for community. They really want to have more connection and be less isolated. But when a small church like a micro church actually offers genuine community where you need to commit to turning up to eat and pray and be accountable and share honestly when your marriage is struggling and to have mm -hmm. people pray for you when you're in pain and uh, then that's such a high bar for people who don't like to be accountable and like to be in charge of their own schedules and see their own life as their own. So there's this attraction to community 
but there's this pushback when you actually realize what it looks like. And I think that's the same with technology, because ultimately what I'm saying is, you know, there is plenty of theology about rest. Uh, Sabbath is actually a really big thing, you know, putting the first fruits of your time and giving them to God and trusting him with your time and allowing him to work when you're not working. But to do that often requires that we unplug from our technologies because our tech is work. For me, I work on the phone, I work on the internet. Uh, what we're doing right now is my work and therefore I need to not do that for a day a week. And that, like turn off your phone for a day a week, tell me that isn't confronting for most people. And so there's this attraction to a life that is slower, but there's also a sacrifice because ultimately we are letting go of idols and letting go of idols is always painful and submitting our idols to Christ and letting him disciple us through our idolatry. So yeah, in terms of the theology of where I would land tech, I think it's both very attractive and it's also very challenging. Look at idolatry as one of the key principles, I think, theologically, if you want to understand where we've landed with tech and also the the Sabbath. And I don't mean a rigid kind of, you must take the Friday night to the Saturday night kind of Jewish Sabbath concept, but I'm talking about the idea of trusting God that he worked for six days and rested on the seventh and he's embedded rest in the creation so we can trust in him. And what does that look like practically? Yeah. The idea of Sabbath uh, and Jesus, of course, as Christians, we understand he uh, took the legalism out of it, but still kept the idea that it's there for our own good. He didn't say Sabbath doesn't matter. He changed what it's for. He said, we're not, we weren't created for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created for us. So the Sabbath isn't removed from the list of important things. It's reframed as this great gift that it was always intended for us to be. And that people now, I think more than ever, are going to have an understanding and a welcome of, I hope. Part of the challenge with tech though, what strikes me is, it's kind of like if you've got a problem with drinking, well, you just stop drinking. But if you've got a problem with overeating, well, you can't just stop eating. You've got to find the proper balance of correct eating. And tech is now the same thing. It's not something you can't just quit tech. There are very, well, maybe a handful of people can completely get off the grid and can live somewhere in the wilderness. And God bless you if you're able to do that. But for most of us in our lives, just quitting tech is not an option. It is part of the way we connect with each other and the way we do our business. So we have to come up with a way of balancing and using it correctly. And as you lay out in your book, some tech is very, very helpful and can increase our productivity extremely in in small doses. But then very quickly, you hit this curve where all of a sudden the, the diminishing returns start hitting, and then it actually becomes a damaging thing. So how do we begin to find that sweet spot of using it enough to be productive, but not overusing it so that it starts, first of all, having limited returns and then eventually actually start damaging us? Yeah. And I think you've made a really good point. Like I'm not at all an anti-tech person. Uh, my assumption is that I'm using tech all the time, you're using it, and the people I, I write to are using it. So uh, if I was writing into an Amish context, well, then I'd probably promote how amazing technology is. I mean, hypothetically, I don't really know the yeah. Amish, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, I'd talk about how incredible it is to be able to connect with people around the world and to get knowledge from everywhere and to you know, FaceTime. There's so much with technology that's brilliant, which is why we use it. My assumption is that most of us are overusing it. And it's not even that we're using it a little bit, like we're using it, you know, the average Australian office worker uses technology at least 12 hours a day. So that's like more than half of their waking life. So we're not talking about a little bit of tech is useful and then a bit more isn't not. It's like, no, a lot of tech is fine, but the way we're using it is complete overkill and it is impacting our souls. What was your question? I'm sorry. How do, how do we go about it? Yeah. I think, could I read a Targum from Psalm 115? Because again, I think you need to look yeah. at it theologically and then practically. So yeah, Psalm 115, great. you may understand, well, certainly if you hear my Targum, my, my interpretation, then you'll remember the original Psalm. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Their idols are lithium, cobalt, glass made by human hands. They have cameras, but cannot see. Siri, but cannot speak. They have touch screens but cannot feel, 5G mobility but cannot walk. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Uh, so I've just changed a few words, obviously, yeah. from, from the scripture that talks about idols made of human hands. But I think there is definitely this sense that we've been drawn into worshipping 
either the idols themselves. So we worship our phones. We would panic if we lost them. Or more commonly, we worship through our phones. They enable us to pursue the loves and longings of our heart, whether that be to feel accepted through social media, to make money through shares or through productivity like email, you know, whether whether we're using our phones to you know, explore our need for belonging through pornography. You know what I mean? Like there's, yeah. we're using our devices for the idol factories are basically enabled through our devices because they open up the world to everything. And so to answer your question, I actually think the first thing we need to do is do a heart check. And I talk about this in my Sabbath chapter, do a heart check, which means turn off your phones and your screens and all devices just once for one day, pick a Saturday or a Sunday, maybe on a weekend, maybe tell people you won't be contactable for that day. And then have an entire day where you disconnect. It's a bit like a St. Ignatius kind of fast. Mm. And actually test the idols of your heart. Find out how you feel. Is it easy? Is it difficult? What do you miss? You might find that you keep reaching for your pocket (laughs) or your mind wanders. Or you might find emotional, painful experiences come up that you just don't want to deal with. And when you have those feelings, you would normally check the CNN News or Fox News, for example. Do you know what I mean? And And so start to get a sense of how much are you mastering these tools where they're beneficial and God-given and they help you and how much are you being mastered by idols without actually recognizing that? Because as disciples of Jesus, we must see the idols in our lives and we must confront them head on. We must fast from them in order to actually use the things that God gives us in a good way. That's probably the first step. And now a short break to talk about something else. If you like the content you're hearing, here are two things you can do for us. First, forward this podcast to a friend. Second, consider becoming a financial supporter through Patreon, Venmo, or PayPal. Just go to carlvaders.com support. For as little as $3 a month, you can help us put these resources into the hands of the ministries that need them the most. Our support link is in the show notes. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Yeah, no, that's huge. I, I, as you were talking about, you know, reaching for your phone, even though it's not there, I have experienced when my phone is not in my pocket, I can still feel that vibration on that side of my leg. <laughs> that's how much it's influenced us when it's not there. You still get the phantom vibration in your leg. So, you know, th- there's a whole bunch of evidence out there that we're overusing it. And for any listeners, the greater you are panicking right now about the idea of going for one day without your phone, the more you need to do it. <laughs> uh. Yeah. The scarier it is, the ness- more necessary it is. All right. Which now moves us from clutter to neuroplasticity. Our phones, our technology, our online lives are literally changing the neurobiology of our brains, aren't they? Yes. Yes. And I in like not your... very good ways, right? Ah, look, again, everything is a double-edged sword because you get benefits from technology, but yeah, there are def- I, I love Tim Challey's quote that technology wears its benefits on its sleeve, but the drawbacks are hidden deep within. We always see what's good about technology at, at yep. first. The problem with neuroplasticity is we're not aware of the drawbacks until they start to change us organically from the inside out. And I quite liked your discussion actually about eating too much, for example. I'm going to change that a little bit because if you eat too much or smoke too much or I don't know, drink too much, you can kind of see 
pretty obviously and pretty quickly the impact on the outside of you. The problem with digital overuse is it's primarily changing us from the inside. It's changing yeah. our neural structures, the way we think. It takes a long time to recognize that actually, you know, I'm experiencing digital obesity <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and that's actually changing my patience and empathy and kindness and ability to focus. But we don't see it because it's happening from the inside out. Maybe I should quickly describe neuroplasticity because yeah, good idea. probably worth sharing. And I used to be a physiotherapist, yeah. so this is where my medical training comes in. But when I was a child, I used to play the piano. Uh, well, I say that, but my parents paid for piano lessons. That's probably, that's probably <laughs> you, and, that's you probably. and me both. That's exactly what happened. Yes. I, I feel your pain and your parents' pain. Yes. I know. Yeah. They mortgaged their house so that I could have lessons and not practice. But, but I did practice, look, let's say 20 minutes. It wasn't every day, but at least a few times a week with mum and dad nagging. But I did that for years and years and years because they were perseverant. Eventually what happened is I found I could play, you know, Chopin and Mozart and all these different pieces. And eventually I could play them without sheet music I would, and I would enjoy it. I would sit down and music would come out of my fingers. And so what happened was there were neural connections being made because I habitually practiced the piano and those connections changed the way I thought. They increased the music centers of my brain. They actually increased my creativity if you look at the research. And eventually I could play. Now, 20 years on, <laughs> I haven't kept practicing and I couldn't play like chopsticks anymore. So I've okay. lost those connections other connections have developed. And what's interesting is I turned around at one point and I realized that I was practicing the internet 12 to 15 hours a day. Ooh. And what would happen if you were to practice the piano 12 to 15 hours a day? I mean, no one would do that. It would be absurd. But let's say I practice the piano 12 hours a day. I mean, I, I would be a genius at the piano. In fact, the music centers of my brain would expand incredibly strongly and other areas would shrink because I wouldn't actually have time to physically, I don't know, exercise or I don't know, mm -hmm. spend time with friends or, or work because all my waking hours were taken up playing the piano. But the average American is on like is online, I think between nine and 12 hours a day. I, I'm not quite sure of the stats, but that's my memory. Uh, and right. so we are practicing the internet 12 hours a day. And that does have an impact on our brain in a very, very significant way. And this is why the research now shows in America, you know, Timothy Wilson did an amazing set of studies in Virginia and he put people in a room for six to 15 minutes by themselves without devices and said, just think about your own thoughts. And the majority of people said it was painful. It was painful to have six to 15 minutes without any like stimulation because their brains have been wired to need constant notifications, constant input, and not to feel pain. And then he wanted to compare what we meant by pain. And so he, he gave people electric shocks, which are so painful that they would pay $5 or more not to be shocked again. He put that cohort in a room and asked them to do the same thing, but there was the electric zapper in the room. And he said, don't zap yourself, just think your own thoughts. But if you want to feel free to zap yourself. And 67% of men and 25% of women would prefer to give themselves painful electric shocks than to have six to 15 minutes of silence to feel their emotions and to think their thoughts undistracted. So there is something happening in our lives oh, yeah. that is changing us. And as a disciple maker, as someone whose role is to help people orientate their mind, their heart and their habits so that they look and act like Christ they hear the word of God and obey where we we're moving from unbelief to belief in every area of our life, one habit at a time. If we're going to be disciples or apprentices of Jesus, we have to take seriously the impact of technological overuse on our brain and to start to unplug, to submit some of our mind back to God. Yeah. And that's wow. the challenge of flipping neuroplasticity back again to something that's healthy. Yeah. And part of the reason it's called neuroplasticity is because our brains are in fact like soft plastic that do get molded depending on the influences upon our brains. They are not static organs. They change by the things we spend our time doing and the things we spend our time thinking about. And as Christians, this should not be surprised to us because the scripture tells us over and over and again that we are 
we are changed by the things that we think. That's why we're supposed to think on a whole list of good things and not <laughs> on the whole list of bad things. You can't stop doing a bad thing by telling yourself, I'm not going to do the bad thing. You have to be, you have to change that what you think about and put it over over somewhere else. One of the things you talked about that I have come back to so many times, and I was so happy to see you bring it up in the book was that technology, because of the speed of it, when you're scrolling through things, you you don't read, you skim. And it changes our ability to think deeply. And you talked about like being in a room with your own thoughts, but even before you get to that, to sit down with a book that you're going to read for minutes or hours at a time, rather than seconds at a time as you're scrolling through, we've lost the ability to even read or think or ponder on a deep level. And that pondering, that deep thinking, that spending time in God's word and reading it and having it transform our lives is a huge part of what it means to be followers of Jesus. And we are we are undermining that neurobiological skill set by the obsession that we have online, aren't we? Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, this is, I, I love that the Bible is on my phone and I love that I can access it anywhere and to look at the commentaries and all that kind of stuff. But I've gone back to using an old fashioned paper Bible for my meditation in the morning because I, I would find that I would be looking at my Bible and then I'd quickly check my email and then I would find I'm responding to a client halfway through my Bible time because everything is on the same device. So the medium is the message. I spent a lot of time talking about that yep. in my book. And for example, you know, if you're on Twitter two hours a day, you're gonna, your brain will learn to think in sound bites and it will learn to listen to other people's thoughts and to get angry quickly and to have emotional responses and to pass on very simplistic ways of thinking rather than thinking in complex, deep ways because the medium shapes the message. So our brain becomes shaped by the tools we use. So again, I'm not anti-Twitter, but I'm anti-overusing anything that is going to orientate our brain away from Christ because what we give attention to grows, what we ignore dies away. This is why we do spiritual disciplines. This is why we are formed and shaped by the practices that we do, whether it be thankfulness, worship, communion, you know, whether it be reading the scriptures, eating a meal with like-minded followers of Jesus, or sharing the gospel regularly with others, these practices, like they are practices. And if we change our brains so that all we do is think in digital sound bites, we will lose our ability to be disciples of Jesus and certainly to make disciples. Yeah, I agree that the crisis is that significant for sure. In fact, when you're online, the online life is about multitasking. It's about switching back and forth between things. And you uh, really wisely point out that we are not as human beings built by our creator to be multitaskers. And that when we're constantly multitasking and switching back and forth between tasks, there are huge downsides and even dangers to that. Walk through what some of the challenges and downsides of switching between tasks actually cause in us. Yeah. I mean, look, the research is we actually can't multitask. So this is one of the challenges. The brain can switch from one thing rapidly to the next very, very quickly. And yet it can't focus on two complex, thought-rich experiences at the same time. And you maybe you can sing in the shower, for example, or do habitual things at the same time, but but you can't think about a maths equation and reflect on your inner life at the same time. You just right. have, you can't. It's impossible. Uh, it doesn't matter what gender you are or, no. or how smart you are. The brain doesn't work that way. And yet the iPhone, you know, the smartphone is wonderfully designed with multitasking as its primary function, and that's its message. And so we get confused thinking that we can act like a phone and we start to think, like you said, in sound bites. So again, the, the beautiful thing about both neuroplasticity and faith is that God continually redeems our mind and redeems our habits. It does start with recognizing what's happening on the inside and then thinking, okay, well, what might it look like to follow Jesus at this time? And I think practicing single tasking is actually really central, learning to turn off your notifications and your devices, have a conversation without your phone being anywhere in sight, you know, going for a walk just along, you know, if I've got a beautiful bush track near me, but it could just be walking around the city and just being still and knowing that he's God and letting your mind think of him or getting a journal and writing, you know, what you're thankful for and worshiping God through the meditation of journaling without a digital device anywhere near you or just soaking up scripture and just sitting in it and asking God what it means for your day. Does that make sense? So, mm -hmm. so I think is I'm not anti-tech. I'm pro-space. I really care about us yeah. making space 
to live a joyful, rich, spirit-filled, creative existence. And that's how God wants us to live. And that will only happen if we intentionally unplug from time to time. I talk about annual, weekly, and daily patterns of unplugging in order to focus once again on the things that really lift us up and help us follow Jesus and give us life. And then we put technology in its place. But without that process of unplugging, confronting our idols, and then finding a new pattern and a new way of being in Jesus, we might find that our faith actually just becomes a bit of a a sideshow to the other stuff that's happening in our life. Yeah. Speaking of new patterns and a new way of being in Jesus, that moves us now to the third big topic that I want to talk about, which is the power of story. You say in, in page 56, we don't perceive the world as it is. We perceive we perceive the world as we see it. Everything comes through the eye gate and through that, which is why the neuroplasticity, this organ in our bodies, this brain by which we perceive everything is the least understood part of our bodies. <laughs> and uh, with that brain, we as human beings, our storytellers always have been, always will be how we see the world around us is more based on the stories we tell ourselves than by the actual reality that's coming through to us. And there's not a single Christian listening to this who should be shocked by this theory. <laughs> no, just it is read, a read the Gospels. Yes, the Gospels. it is a profoundly <laughs> Christian way of understanding the world, that the stories we tell ourselves are what form us and make us who we are. Talk to us about the power of story. Why does it matter so much, the stories we tell ourselves? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, look, firstly, I agree with you. Just read the Gospels. And when it, Jesus doesn't preach like most preachers, he just tells stories about fish and wheat mm -hmm. and, and servants and weddings. Uh, the Gospel itself is a message. It's a story about you know God's redemption of the world because of Christ coming and um, dying, rising again and redeeming us. So story is really foundational. The challenge is we also live in an alternative set of stories. I can't speak for American culture, but certainly I think there's there's a lot of similarities. We live in an alternative set of stories that shape and mold us. And if we're not aware of those stories, well, then we can find that our discipleship to Jesus is actually more like the culture of you know America or Australia than it is the gospel expressed in our country and our cultures. Uh, so for an example, in my culture, but I'm sure it's the same in America, you know, individualism is a story that the world revolves around me, yep. that my needs, my rights, and my feelings are ultimately important, and that we make decisions based on individual rights before community rights. Now, I don't know where that story came from, but I think the gospel might challenge aspects of that story. It's not and or, but I think we've way overcooked it, where yeah. we're, we're far from what you see in terms of collective cultures like Jesus lived in, and we've just become hyper-individualized to the point where it's narcissistic and selfish and our societies are fracturing as a result. Another story which I challenge directly in the book is the freedom narrative, the idea that freedom is found through self-expression, through following your heart and being authentic to your feelings and emotions. And the ultimate truth is that you can be free to be who you have been made to be. Now, we can add God language to that, to be who God made you to be but it's still the American Australian freedom narrative where actually mm -hmm. I see in the gospel that freedom is the choice to submit your freedom to God and take up your cross and follow him and trust that true freedom comes through submission and giving up your life. And that's where you find it. It's a completely opposite story. And yet the stories that we have change everything. And in terms of tech, if you can't challenge a story, let's say like the freedom narrative, that more freedom and more choice means more liberty and happiness and more faithfulness, well, then the idea of disconnecting from your phone and having limits on your online time will feel like it's pushing against your gospel. But actually, life happens when we disconnect from time to time in order to actually experience the freedom of boundaries and limits and submitting the things that we love in order to truly love God more. That's a very quick example. Look at the stories that shape your life. 
It really we we have the, we have these stories that run through our heads, the the stories of our childhood, the stories that uh, that we replay in our minds every single day about the expectations we have about the people around us and how they're responding, and I think that what you've just talked about this self centered story is such a huge part of American Australian culture, especially not just us, but since that's who we're who we are, that's who we'll speak into. And to me, the picture I always have is we're trying to squeeze God into our story and God is telling a much bigger story and he allows us to enter into his story. And that's really what the gospel is all about. So we're not just talking about the individual stories within the Bible, but the story arc of the Bible, this story arc of being created in God's image, sinning and, and destroying that image. And then the, re the redemptive story of Christ's life and death and resurrection, where he is now redeeming all of creation back to himself. We literally have a part to play in the greatest story, not ever told, but that is currently being told. And Christ offers us to enter his story and be a part of that story. And why would I want God to fit into my tiny little story when he's inviting me to fit into his universal redemption story. That's a better, bigger story. Why wouldn't we all want to just simply jump into part of that? But we change our language around because the culture around us tells us everything should fit into your story and you should come first. And it's just, it's a smaller story to, to start with. I, I want to be a part of a bigger story. I love that. I love that. I mean, Wolfgang Simpson says, you know, your, if we can't pray your kingdom come unless we pray my kingdom go. And I really love that. I, I love, yeah. I love that actually it feels painful to pray my kingdom go, but actually this is the gospel that we give up our life and we enter into God's way and we experience a wealth of beauty and richness and peace and transformation that is far beyond anything we can experience with our own little minute story when we hold everything in our own hands. But it's so countercultural counter and it's yeah. the gospel. It's the upside down kingdom to trust Jesus the person who died on the cross and rose again <laughs> and to find our life in death and resurrection rather than success and progress. Yeah. Well, as I expected so much, we could talk for so long, but uh, we aren't even halfway through the book. The last half of the book, you walk through the space framework and it's an acronym space. You use as an acronym, set limits, plan patterns, assign rest, cultivate community and embrace silence. Since we just have a few minutes, and I, I do want to ask you our lightning round questions before we conclude. Uh, is there anything about basically that outline that you can give us a quick understanding of? Because that's really, you, you set up all of the challenges in the front half of the book, but then you lay out a real strong pathway back in the back half of that book using that acronym. So is there any way, or am I asking too much for you to take the entire half of your book and sum it up <laughs> in just a couple minutes here together? Yeah. Uh, Jesus, you know, like the old, uh, <laughs> like, yeah, like, the old <laughs> like the old, um, Sunday school answer for everything. No, uh, no, I can't do, I can't go through every part wow. of it, obviously, but in terms of the framework, what I, what I felt like I needed to do is I started to write the book as a 20 page practical ebook about how you could unplug oh, right. from devices and the benefit from a productivity perspective. And I very quickly realized that you can't teach people to, let's say, turn off their phone at the start and the end of the day and charge their phone outside of their bedroom and make space to think to start and end of the day or to turn off your phone during a day a week for like Sabbath, which is really, really hard. You know, those kind of practices, they don't work unless you change right. your paradigm, which is actually about metanoia. It's about repentance and belief. I don't use that language in the book, but you need to right. change your paradigm, your story. So the first section is about changing our paradigm. And that's why it's called the paradigm of tech. The second section is about shifting your principles. So that's the space framework. What are the true north or faith-filled principles that you could reorientate your mind around, uh, like community and silence and rest, and practically how might you create healthy limits around tech and create predictable patterns to shape your mind like spiritual disciplines. Uh, and in the last section, so we've gone um, paradigm principles. The last one is practices. That's the book I wrote originally. You know, how do you practically, very specifically and tangibly have a day of rest? How might you have digital free meals? How might you change your phone so it's less addictive? But unless you do the, the heart and soul work with the paradigm shift and then work out what does, what does good look like, which is the principles, 
it's very hard to do the simple unplugging practices. And that's why the book is shaped the way it is. Uh, hopefully that yeah. helps. I don't know if I can give specific details. No, I, I appreciate that. And I really do recommend it again, Spacemaker, how to unplug, unwind and think clearly in the digital age. It is so practically written. Every chapter has questions at the end to, to walk through what was what was in the chapter. And like, like we talked about, the front half of the book really lays out these challenges that we've talked about. The back half walks through those five steps of very practical ways to deal with it. As you mentioned, it's not written specifically for a Christian audience. And in fact, you are one of the very few people who's coming at writing this from a Christian standpoint, and it's really uh, taken off outside of the church world as well. It has become a, a big seller in the secular world because the principles are so universal. You don't need to be a Christian in order for uh, the biblical principles to work in your life if you uh, if you apply them to your life accurately. So much of that, that that's great. So you've also, however, got a new book coming out soon. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, I'm very excited about this. So when I speak to different audiences around making space, usually with leaders, the number one question I receive is, you know, what about my kids? How can I help them with their addiction? And so I've written a parenting book called Raising Tech Healthy Humans, How to Reset Your Children's Tech Habits and Give Them a Great Start to Life. And so it's different than Spacemaker in the sense of it's a very short, like it's a less than a two-hour read. I wanted it to be practical, research-based, and very specific for parents who are just run off their feet. But basically, it's how do you set up your kids, particularly with kids between the ages of five and 12 years old. So in Australia, that's primary school, but basically pre-high school, you know, pre-teens, where so much of the technology foundation stuff is set up. How do you set up kids with great tech habits and help them to be healthy, broad, functioning humans, raising humans? Absolutely. Sounds fantastic. All right. Let's get to the lightning round question before we let you go. Okay. Four lightning round questions. Question number one, what are the biggest changes you've seen in your field of ministry in the last few years and how have you adapted to it? Yeah, look, I mean, for, for me personally, I was a pastor until four months ago. So there's been a big change. Oh, personally. that's a big change. Very uh, that is a big yeah. change personally. But look, I think the big change is I see that big churches are doing well and I see that micro churches are doing well, you know, I, I, and I they're so different. And I think God is using both forms in beautiful ways, but I'm definitely in the micro church camp. I just see this hunger for an authentic multiplying network of small churches that have low maintenance and low costs. And I'm excited about the future for what might happen as we continue to walk in that way. Yeah, I'm seeing the same thing and I'm equally excited by it too. Uh, secondly, what free resource like an app or a website has helped you lately that you would recommend for small church ministry? Yeah, look for, for evangelism, I think one of the things that I found helpful was movements.net. So it's Steve Addison's website. There's 411 training, which is just very practical skills on how <laughs> might you share the gospel using three circles? How might you share your testimony, etc. And that informed some of the stuff I've taught uh, in my Together Network role. So yeah, that stuff's good. Great. We will put that in the show notes along with all the links to your books as well. Uh, what's the best piece of ministry advice you've ever received? It was probably from Mike Breen where he said, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but the church tries to do church, then won't succeed. Or if it tries to do community or if it tries to do mission, it won't succeed. It actually needs to put discipleship at the center of what it does. And I have come to the conclusion, and obviously I don't mean that in a in a non-complex way, you still need worship, you still need children's ministry and things like that. But I think discipleship as the founding principle of why we do what we do is just so important. And I think the main game is not to create Christians, it's to create apprentices of Jesus who look and act like him in every area of their life. If we were to change our thinking about what church is and put discipleship ahead of you know numbers or budgets, or a whole lot of other things where I think it would make a tremendous difference forming disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Fully agreed. As, that is an emphasis that I have been coming back to the Lord has brought, brought me back to as well. And that I, I I'm seeing the church respond to, and I'm hoping we are coming to a revival of the idea of discipleship in the church. That is going to be the way forward for sure. All right. Now what's the funniest or weirdest thing you've ever seen in church? Yeah, that's a hard question. I, <laughs> I, some of the funny things are probably inappropriate to share, but um, <laughs> look, one of the funnest things, how about I go with that, is I, okay. I love that we've started to have baptisms at, there's a friend's house who has this indoor pool, and so now our baptisms happen there, and then we all say, okay, let's have a pool party afterwards, and everyone jumps in the pool, and we eat food, and we just have this massive party, and I, 
it's one of the most joyful experiences I have in church community life when someone gives their life to Jesus, is baptized, and then we all jump in the pool and have this massive party. So uh, that sounds it's nice great. That everyone gets to rebaptize. <laughs> there's a good re- there's a good reason for us to stop doing it in horse troughs and start doing it in pools. Nobody, <laughs> we can't we can't all jump in the horse trough afterwards. <laughs> I heard I heard your podcast about the horse trough. That was excellent. Yeah, we do that. We do that. All right. Yeah. When you got limited space, you pull out the horse trough. All right. How can people find you online if they want to follow up on anything, Daniel? Yeah, no, thanks. Look, I'm, uh, I have a website, spacemakers.com.au, which is my business in terms of productivity coaching, but you'll find stuff on the book there. And I also will have a website, raisinghumans.au, where there'll be parenting resources and a parenting pack and a whole lot of stuff related to my new book. So feel free to look at that as well. Fantastic. I highly recommend everything that I've seen by Daniel so far. I appreciate uh, what you've done. And I encourage everybody to look that up. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for your wisdom today. We really appreciate it. God bless. Thanks so much, Cal. This was such an important conversation with so many takeaways. I'm going to give you just five. I think five may be the most takeaways I've given so far, but it feels like it's not even enough to cover all of what we talked about today. But let me give you five of them. First, we need to see that as we're living in an increasingly tech-driven world, the technology that used to be and still can be so helpful is now actually causing significant changes to the way we work, to the way we worship, the way we live, the way we communicate. It's even rewiring the way our brains work. This is like neurobiologically true, and many of these changes are not good. Secondly, even with all of that, thankfully the news is not all bad because Daniel has offered some great Bible-based insights into how we can acknowledge these challenges, offer a far better alternative for ourselves and for others, and minister in ways that really answer people's deepest needs. Thirdly, not only is the church uniquely built by Christ to offer the answers to our longings, but the close community-based nature of a healthy small church is especially suited for it. Fourth, We as pastors and church leaders need to get healthy and stay healthy ourselves. That has to be our baseline. And then fifth, and this was a huge one for me in this conversation because it's been a huge topic of conversation for me as I've talked to others and as I've looked at my own life lately. We must stop living by the world's stories and we must find ourselves immersed in the bigger, better story that God is telling. This episode was produced by Veronica Beaver. It was edited by Phil Vaders. Original theme music was written and performed by Jack Wilkins of jackwilkinsmusic.com. The graphic design is by Solomon Joy. And me, I'm Carl Vaders, and I hope to talk with you again in the church lobby. This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series, Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com CT.